Welcome to the Daily Journal Podcast for November 22nd, 2019. I'm Brian Cardile. On today's show, we'll discuss a recent Supreme Court cert grant in a securities matter decided by the Ninth Circuit that could significantly impact the sort of punishment and remedies the SEC can mete out against folks violating the country's securities laws. Our guests are two securities experts from Munger Tolls and Olson, former SEC Regional Director John Barry and former Assistant to the Solicitor General Elaine Goldenberg. They say the particular remedy at issue in this appeal, disgorgement, so when the agency has heavily relied upon to try to deter security offenses and make things right in their aftermath by clawing back ill-gotten gains. It's also a practice they say that's been broadly viewed as permissible, but a 2017 SCOTUS ruling has cast some doubt on the SEC's ability to enforce the remedy. And John and Elaine also say the Supreme Court may have some reason to think the government has overused it in certain instances. And so maybe in a frame of mind to pare back the SEC's remedial authority. That case is Lou versus the Securities and Exchange Commission. But before getting into it and hearing from our guests, let's get to our semi-regular opening briefs segment as I catch you up on a few other pressing items from the week of legal news. First, also relating to the Ninth Circuit, that court is likely to welcome in two new additions within the next couple of months after former Southern District Prosecutor Patrick Bumate and former Nevada Solicitor General Lawrence Van Dyke cleared the Senate Judiciary Committee on Thursday. The pair's favorable committee report came on the strength of two party-line 12 to 10 votes. Bumate and Van Dyke would mark Donald Trump's ninth and tenth successful appointments to the 29-seat appellate court. Only three of his prior nominees cleared committee with anything other than strictly partisan support. But Thursday's vote marks the first time the committee has approved for the Ninth Circuit a candidate the American Bar Association deemed not qualified. Van Dyke is a Harvard Law School graduate who earned his degree with honors and has been the Solicitor General of three states, Texas, Montana, and Nevada. He also spent time in private practice with Gibson Dunn and Crutcher. Despite those credentials, the ABA, in pretty frank terms, questioned Van Dyke's merit as an appellate nominee, calling him arrogant, lazy, and a conservative ideologue. Senators on Thursday repeated some of the organization's particular concerns, with several wondering whether gay and lesbian litigants in the circuit could assume impartial treatment from Van Dyke, who wrote in the past in opposition to same-sex marriage, saying it would harm families and society. But also, as Republican senators mentioned during Van Dyke's hearing, the attorney filed a Supreme Court amicus brief in 2010 backing a group called Gays and Lesbians for Individual Liberty, though the actual party in that appeal whose position Van Dyke's brief supported was a Christian student organization that hoped to exclude LGBTQ members from its ranks. At the end of several Democratic objections, the committee's chairman, Lindsey Graham, defended Van Dyke by saying the nominee's views were shared by many Republicans on the committee. Graham also noted that the other nominee being voted on, Bumate, is gay and married with children. When Bumate and Van Dyke were before the committee, Graham reminded Bumate had expressed confidence that Van Dyke would treat him or his family fairly were they before Van Dyke's courtroom. Bumate is the son of Filipino immigrants and was classmates with Van Dyke at Harvard Law School. He clerked on the 10th Circuit for Judge Timothy Timkovich and has been a government attorney since then, working as an AUSA in California Southern District and more recently at Maine Justice in Washington Bumate would be the first openly gay judge on the Ninth Circuit. He is 41 and would replace Carlos Bea in San Francisco. Van Dyke is 46 and would take Jay Bybee's seat in Las Vegas. On to a bit of state court news. The California Supreme Court on Thursday blocked a recently passed law that aimed at keeping presidential candidates off California's primary election ballot if they, like the current Republican incumbent, haven't publicly released five years of income tax returns challenge to that law, SB 27, was brought directly to the state high court since its time sensitivity couldn't allow for the usual trip up the appellate ladder before next year's election. And on Thursday, the court unanimously decided the measure conflicted with a provision in California's Constitution, Proposition 4, which requires the Secretary of State to place on the ballot any recognized candidate, which in the court's view necessarily includes an incumbent. The justices reason that Prop 4 essentially demands an open an inclusive primary that would place before the voters all of the candidates they might care to support. The burden imposed by SB 27 then would fall not only on a presidential candidate, but on his or her supporters. A multi-front legal attack against SB 27 was waged, of which this case is one part. Previously, a federal court in Sacramento enjoined the law. That ruling is being appealed, though, but the second blow from California Supreme Court seems to pretty surely sign SB 27's death warrant chat just a bit more about the ruling. We're joined now by the attorney who argued the case on behalf of the California Republican Party chair, Jessica Milan-Patterson. 
He's Tom Hiltak of Bell, McAndrews, and Hiltak in Sacramento, and he joins me now. Tom, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Before we get into just the, the, the nuts and bolts of this ruling here unanimously in favor of your, your client in the case you argued, um, one question I think folks might have is the importance of this ruling in light of the fact that there had previously been a, a federal district court ruling uh, also holding similarly that this this law couldn't take effect. So with that federal ruling in place, what uh, is the significance of the case that just came down yesterday? Well, the legal theory was different, um, but you're right. A federal district court judge here in Sacramento um, had previously ruled and issued an injunction against the enforcement of that portion of SB 27 that would have applied to presidential candidates on the grounds that it violated the federal constitution um, and and was preempted by um, federal law, namely the the um, federal law that requires financial disclosure by federal candidates and officeholders. Um, and so, but that but that injunction had been appealed by the Secretary of State in the state of California, and so that was pending in the Ninth Circuit. And you know, with with the Supreme Court's um, decision yesterday. Um, I, I would suspect that the state will move to dismiss that appeal and and the federal decision will be rendered moot by the Supreme Court's action yesterday. Sure. So theoretically, that appellate court could have overturned the lower court and you'd be... Um... Right. And because this was so time sensitive, um, you know, something if that were to have occurred, then you're trying to race to the U.S. Supreme Court to try to to overturn the Ninth Circuit and... And you know, November 26 was essentially the deadline for candidates to have complied with SB 27. So, the you know, our our view was we had such a, a you know sort of single, simple, direct attack on the law under the state constitution, and the, and once the court expressed a willingness to consider that on a on a expedited basis, that it would provide you know permanent relief. And you know, avoid the potentiality of having to go to the U.S. Supreme Court and seek relief. Gotcha. Okay, so let's turn to, to that um, theory based on California's constitution. Tell me about uh, how um, the court came down on uh, on your argument based on based on that. Our view was that that the that the state's constitutional provision enacted in 1972 with Proposition Four established what it refers to as an open presidential primary and that's a term of art that was not you know clearly defined in the in the constitutional provision but when looking back through the legislative history that predated its enactment and and what the voters were told in the voter information pamphlet at the time it was clear what that meant was that that California was changing its presidential primary system from what you might call an opt-in system where a candidate had to do take some affirmative action to get their name placed on the primary election ballot to what is probably best described as an opt-out situation where a candidate's name would be placed on the ballot if they were generally recognized to be a candidate for president unless they took some affirmative action to declare that they were not a candidate and did not want to have their name placed on the ballot. And so what SB 27 did, in our view, was effectively undermined the opt-out part of Proposition 4 in the Constitution because it would have allowed a candidate to essentially have their name removed from the ballot by simply not complying with SB 27. So that was sort of the thrust of our legal argument, which you know the court unanimously agreed with. And um, there was a concurrence as well by Justice Quayer. I noticed it was what was the importance of, of, of that separate writing? Well, I think you know words mean what they say. I mean, my sense was that he wanted to make sure that it was clear that you know the decision really didn't have anything to do with the merits of whether candidates for high public office should reveal their tax returns or not, um, but that. You know our constitutional provision, you know, would not have allowed that to be a condition for gaining access to the ballot. And so, I thought the majority was pretty clear about that. But he wanted to express himself, and and it was a pretty short concurring opinion. 
Right. And should note, he also signed on with the majority opinion. So they had all seven justices um, join it. Was there any um, surprise at all on your part to see the, the court unanimously come down in, in, in favor of the argument that you put forward? Well, you know, I thought I thought the legal argument was pretty straightforward. Um, and I think it was important that the court did this unanimously. Um, this shouldn't have been a political issue. It shouldn't be sort of tainted by what's going on with respect to, you know, the president at the current moment. But but I was pleased, and I think it was important for them to speak in one voice, um, that this really wasn't a partisan issue. This was, you know, this affected candidates running for you know, the nomination of, of all of the identified and recognized political parties in California and, and the harm that would have been caused um, from the violation of the state constitution, you know, applied to to all California voters and to all of the political parties that have been recognized in the state of California. So, uh, you know, I was pleased by that, and I think it was really important for the court to speak in one voice for that for that reason. Sure. Okay. Well, Tom Hiltek from Bell McAndrews and Hiltek in Sacramento. Congrats on the ruling, and thanks for Thank taking you. the time for us. My pleasure. Okay. We're getting to our main segment about Lou versus the SEC. Let me first remind you just a couple of things. First, all of our listeners are encouraged to claim an hour of participatory CLE credit for having tuned into the show. It's easy to do. Just find the show on our site, www.dailyjournal.com, and click through to a short true-false test related to this episode. We definitely appreciate folks taking the test and submitting the not much more than nominal fee as it helps us continue to bring you this content outside of our usual paywall. Also, don't forget that many other CLE options exist for Daily Journal subscribers. Lots of articles every week both keep you abreast of developing laws and jurisprudence and provide you also the option to claim CLE credit for keeping so apprised. Okay, John Barry and Elaine Goldenberg are two partners with Munger Tolls and Olson. John is here in the LA office and Elaine is in Washington, D.C. They both have a real wealth of securities law experience. John served as the regional director of the SEC's Los Angeles office, in which capacity he handled over 100 matters, including the case we'll speak about today, Lou versus the SEC. In that case, the SEC proved that two defendants fraudulently obtained about $27 million from investors hoping to take advantage of the EB-5 Immigration Investor Program, under which foreign investors are provided a pathway to obtaining a U.S. visa provided their investments go towards certain salutary ends within the United States. The investments the defendants here solicited, though, largely went into their own pockets or to others that were helping conduct the fraudulent scheme. Resulting from the enforcement action, the defendants were ordered to disgorge $27 million, roughly what they'd obtained through the, the fraudulent activity, and also civil monetary penalties were imposed. The Ninth Circuit affirmed that result, but now the defendants turned petitioners argued to the Supreme Court that a recent high court decision cast doubt on whether the SEC can use the discouragement remedy at all. That 2017 decision came in the case of Kokesh versus the SEC, and as luck and deliberate planning would have it, Elaine actually argued the case before SCOTUS on behalf of the government as assistant to the Solicitor General. So she'll help fill us in on the bearing it has on the appeal here. And John and Elaine will both help us figure out just what might become of the SEC's broad complement of enforcement powers when this case gets resolved later this term. Let me first welcome in Elaine Goldenberg, then, Munger Tolls and Olson partner in Washington. Elaine, thanks for being here. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, and John Barry is a partner in the firm's Los Angeles office. John, welcome onto the show. Thank you. Talking about this, this case, Lou versus the SEC, we'll get into whether or not the SEC can order disgorgement as sort of an equitable remedy in its enforcement matters, given that in a recent Supreme Court case, the Kokesh case, the Supreme Court has sort of referred to it more as a, a penalty than an equitable uh, form of relief. So um, we'll get to that. But just starting with the, the Lou case that, that you worked on here in L.A., tell me about the, the two defendants here and this sort of um, investment scheme that, that uh, they were running. Sure. So uh, the defendants were a husband and wife team, Charles Lou and Lisa Wang. And Back in 2010, they, they formed a, uh, a project um, with a doctor, Dr. John Thrope, to cr- build and create what they called a uh, proton cancer treatment center, which was designed to use proton to help people get rid of cancer. And they, they were, what they were doing was trying to raise money through a 
federal program called the EB-5 program, and that allows uh, people to raise money by going to foreign investors. If the foreign investors put up each $500,000, they can get a visa in exchange for the investment. Um, and it's it's a program that's been used quite often out here in California to raise money. And they raised, Charles Liu and Lisa Wang raised about $27 million between 2014 and 2016. But in the end, by 2016, all that money had been raised, but all you could see was a hole in the ground in Southern California. There was no building. Nothing was built. So we at the SEC went in and sought a TRO. Um, in federal court in May of 2016 to shut them down. And it was somewhat of a colorful case, not only because it had this sort of EB-5 sort of way of raising money, but also the way they raised money. Uh, Charles Liu and Lisa Wang touted that and claimed on their websites and brochures that they had the backing of former President Bush, former Governor Schwarzenegger, and an L.A. mayor for this investment. And they also used overseas marketers to raise the money. They used three entities. One of them uh, was called United Dime Group, or UDG. But in fact, we had evidence, including Lisa Wang's business card, that she was the owner of that entity that was raising money for them overseas. So in the end, as I said, they spent, uh, they raised about $27 million and didn't have much to show for it after two years. And in fact, they took themselves 8.2 million of that personally for themselves to spend it on things like houses and their kids' college education and things like that. So, yeah, in, in reading some of these facts, it, it certainly sounds as as alleged and, and found in the underlying court to be a pretty audacious scheme here. Um, we'll move ahead to, I guess, the, the remedies as they're central to the Supreme Court appeal. Um, so you mentioned that about $27 million were, were raised, about $8 million funneled sort of personally to the two defendants. Those numbers come up again in the remedies. The, the disgorgement relief is in the, the amount, I, I guess, of the, the total that was taken in. So $27 million are ordered to be disgorged. In addition to that, there's about $8 million in, in civil penalties and an injunction, I guess, to not do it anymore, the, what, what they had been doing. So I guess tell me about that that complement of, uh, of remedies. Sure. So, I mean, there was a, quite a bit of litigation in this case, it's a, a fighting over and arguing over Fifth Amendment assertions, whether or not the EB-5 investment was actually a security that could be regulated by the SEC. But in the end, while I was at the SEC, we moved for uh, summary judgment. And uh, the judge, Judge Carney in district court in LA, granted summary judgment against Charles Liu and Lisa Wang, and also granted our request for remedies. And in that case, as we at the SEC, when I was at the SEC, and it's very common for the SEC to do this, it's sort of the trifecta of remedies. You get an injunction, which is uh, what the SEC calls an obey the law injunction um, that bars people from ever violating the law again. And then, more importantly for our discussion, they got two monetary remedies. One was disgorgement, and that disgorging amount represented the total amount that the defendants has raised in this fraudulent offering. And uh, Judge Carney imposed the penalty that we had asked for, which was $8.2 million. And that $8.2 million represented what the statute caused the pecuniary gain, quote-unquote, of the two defendants. The $8.2 million was what each of them received. I think Charles Liu had gotten about $6.7 million personally into his bank accounts, and Lisa Wang got about $1.5 million into her bank accounts. It didn't actually include, for example, the money that went to United Dime Group, or UDG, which she was the chairman of. That was about almost $4 million. It just included, the penalty was just what the two of them, which showed up in their bank accounts, which was $8.2 million. So it was a $27 million disgorgement figure for the total amount raised, and an $8.2 million penalty for what they each personally received. Now, on an appeal to the Supreme Court, uh, after the, the Ninth Circuit and a fairly cursory memorandum opinion affirmed, the, the defendants are now, petitioners are, are not arguing uh, at least the question presented is is not about sort of the, the central claims here about whether or not they did the underlying crimes, but just whether or not those penalties, uh, those remedies were were too much. Whether in addition to the civil penalties, twenty seven million in disgorgement was it was improper by the the laws that govern these sorts of prosecutions. So Elaine, let me ask you the the main basis for that argument that the disgorgement was improper is sort of an argument pulled from. A recent Supreme Court case that, that you argued, the Kokesh case, where the court 
said, I'm not sure if it's exactly in a holding or in dicta or something kind of in between that disgorgement is is a, is a penalty rather than an equitable form of, of relief. Um, tell me, I guess, a bit about that Kokesh case and how it how it factors in here. Absolutely. So, as you say, the question in Kokesh was, was the disgorgement that was ordered in that case a penalty within the meaning of a statute of limitations provision? And that's 28 U.S.C. 2462, which creates a five-year statute of limitations for actions for the enforcement of any civil fine, penalty, or forfeiture. So the question was, does SEC disgorgement fit into any of those categories? Is it a fine? Is it a penalty? Or is it a forfeiture? And the reason it mattered in that case is that the commission had brought the enforcement action in 2009 covering conduct, misappropriation of money that went all the way back to 1995. And so if a five-year statute of limitations applied, then the disgorgement amount that was ordered in that case, which was, I think, around $35 million, was too large because it had gone too far back in time. And what the court said, and this was very much the court's holding, uh, although it was in the context of this statute of limitations provision, was that disgorgement uh, as um, collected by the SEC is a penalty. The court said it's sought for punishment because it's imposed as a consequence of violating a public law, though so it's a remedy for a violation against the United States. That's what the SEC is enforcing. The court said that disgorgement is imposed for punitive purposes because it is a deterrent. It's regarded as having a deterrent effect, and deterrence is a punitive purpose. And finally, the court said it's not truly compensatory, at least not in every case, because the district court in a disgorgement case involving the SEC has discretion about where the money goes. Compensation is really a secondary goal. And in many cases, some of the money is eventually dispersed to the U.S. Treasury rather than to victims of the whatever scheme is at issue in the case. So for all those reasons, the court characterized disgorgement as a penalty and said, therefore, this five-year statute of limitations does apply and bars the SEC and courts from going back further than five years in time from the time the action is brought to try to collect disgorgement money. It makes total sense why that difference between the remedy being equitable or a penalty makes uh, is essential to that case relating to a statute of limitations about whether a penalty can be applied. I guess how why is it important the distinction in in, in this case? The court expressed some concerns along these lines at the argument in Kokesh, and then there's actually a footnote in the Kokesh decision that reserves the issue that's now before the court in lieu. And the reason why it matters is because of the statutory authority that the SEC has for getting remedies. And the statutory authority that arguably allows disgorgement, or that the SEC has argued allows disgorgement, is that the SEC can seek injunctions and the SEC can seek equitable relief. And so the question of whether disgorgement falls into either of those categories, and really it's the equitable relief category that is the one that the SEC has focused on, is very salient in terms of whether somebody can argue that the SEC isn't entitled to disgorgement at all. And the fact that the court in Kokesh characterized disgorgement as a penalty, petitioners have seized on here and Parties in other cases have also seized on to say a penalty is the opposite of equitable relief. If something is a penalty and a punishment, it can't be considered equitable. Courts sitting in equity in the days of the divided bench didn't award penalties. They didn't award punitive damages. And so if it's really so that disgorgement is a penalty, as the court ruled in Kokesh, then the SEC doesn't have any statutory authority to obtain disgorgement as a remedy when it brings actions in federal court. John, let me ask you, and just in terms of how traditionally or how commonly the particular remedy of disgorgement has been used. So the court is saying, you know, maybe we're not sure whether it's a, it's an appropriate remedy, but I understand it, it has certainly been applied in, in lots of security enforcement actions, right? Yeah, as I said, it, it's sort of the, it's part of the trifecta of remedies that the SEC normally gets in most of its enforcement cases. It's the, the SEC usually seeks to obey the law injunction, disgorgement, and then a penalty. In fact, the SEC for a long time didn't even have the power to seek penalties. In the long history of the SEC, it's sort of a recent development. And so the SEC has traditionally sought it, continues to seek it. That is the remedy of disgorgement. They seek it in insider trading cases, offering fraud cases like this Lou case, cases against investment advisors, you know, just making investment advisors disgorge and give up their fees, for example. Financial fraud cases sometimes, if somebody's bonus, for example, is tied to a financial result. And as I said, insider trading, the scourging the illegal profits. So it's it's a common remedy the SEC seeks. 
both when they file in district court and back back when they had the power um, and ability to go file cases before an administrative judge. It's actually it's by statute they can seek disgorgement in front of an administrative judge. So it's it's something that SEC has always done historically. Going back to the 1970s, I think, was when the first cases exist that allowed the SEC to obtain disgorgement. And at this point, the amount that the SEC recovers in disgorgement every year is absolutely enormous. And that's something that the petitioners seized on in the Liu case as a way of helping to convince the court to take the case to show how important the case is. And one of the statistics was that in fiscal year 2019, it was 3.5 $25 billion in disgorgement that the SEC obtained across all of its cases. And so obviously the stakes in the Liu case are extremely high. If the court says that the SEC isn't entitled to the disgorgement remedy when it's used in federal court, then that's a, a huge amount of money that's no longer uh, flowing um, out of the hands of the wrongdoers into other folks' hands. But it also may mean that the SEC has to seek other options for trying to get recovery against wrongdoers. I understand that this case will, will sort of revolve around an uh, interpretation of, of a statute and the, the authorized available you know, tools in the SEC's tool belt. But just in terms of sort of a broader conception of, of what the SEC is, is doing and enforcing securities law, I mean, it, it does seem like there'd be a bit kind of a loophole or a bit of a sort of vacuum of um, something creating problematic incentives. You know, if you say, OK, you, you can be penalized for violating securities laws, disgorgement isn't on the table. I mean, doesn't that sort of suggest that defendant could run some sort of scheme that gets a ton of money that might be more than the civil penalties available? And if that can't be disgorged, then it's sort of incentivized. Those folks might be incentivized to, to seek something like that. I mean, there's a lack of a deterrence void, potentially. Is that a fair Surmise, uh, John? Well, you, you could argue that by statute, the SEC can seek um, what's called the pecuniary gain if it was a if it was an intentional fraud. So if someone ran some fraudulent scheme and raised $100 million but kept $20 million and spent it for themselves, that statute would allow the SEC to get a court to impose a penalty equal to that pecuniary gain of $20 million. Now, if if the Lou case goes the way it may go, it, the SEC may not even be able to seek the $100 million in disgorgement or may not be able to seek that much. But they will still have – the penalty power of the SEC can be quite large. It probably hasn't been used to its extreme because it's always sought in conjunction with the disgorgement remedy. So often the disgorgement remedy is so big – um, and I've certainly seen cases like this where the disgorgement remedy is big, and even though the SEC has the power to seek more in penalty, the judge imposes can impose a fairly small penalty because the disgorgement number is so big. So if that gets reversed and the disgorgement number is now is either zero or very low, I could see judges imposing higher penalties to sort of balance that out. And as I think John referred to before as well, it's very clear in the relevant statutes that the SEC is expressly authorized by Congress to seek and get disgorgement in administrative proceedings. So although there may be some issues with respect to SEC administrative proceedings at the moment, that's another option for the SEC is to proceed administratively rather than going to federal court if disgorgement is something that is important in that particular case in the SEC's view. The ability for the SEC to hold those sorts of things in administrative tribunals, that that was the center of a, also a recent Supreme Court case, right? It was the Lucia case, that's correct, right, which okay. was about the administrative law judges and how they were appointed. And there are still fights going on in the courts now about whether there are constitutional problems with the several layers of protection against removal that SEC administrative law judges have. So there are some legal issues that are still swirling around the SEC administrative proceedings. That's true. Also, just one more question, Elaine, if I could ask you. The other thing I was a bit uncertain about with this particular question presented is, is whether, okay, if you say you know, penalties are permitted in the SEC enforcement actions and, and disgorgement is a, is a penalty, then is that suggesting that you, you could still have disgorgement as long as it's sort of beneath some statutory penalty cap? Or is the question here whether or not that sort of remedy is on the table at all? The case has certainly been set up uh, in the cert papers and in the question presented as being about whether the remedy is on the table at all. There was some skirmishing in the cert papers about whether what petitioner was really asking for was something more case and fact specific. And petitioner came out strongly and said, no, we want to know as a general matter whether the SEC can seek and obtain disgorgement from courts as equitable relief, even though now in Kokesh, you, the Supreme Court, have said that disgorgement is a penalty. So I suppose it's possible, depending on how the Supreme Court rules, that if the Supreme Court says 
yes, disgorgement is a penalty. It doesn't fall within the scope of equitable relief. SEC, you can't seek it, that the SEC could come back and say, well, we're going to do something a little different now than what we were doing before, and we're going to do something that's more purely restitutionary or just something that doesn't have some of the aspects of disgorgement that have caused the court to characterize it as a penalty, and they could try that. But I still think that the way that the case is set up, it's going to be a very, and this is what the Supreme Court usually does, how it usually operates, it's going to be a broad-based ruling about disgorgement and how it fits into the statutory scheme. But it is, Brian, an interesting question of, you know, is the issue, can the SEC actually seek disgorgement, or is it how much disgorgement can the SEC seek? And I think that latter issue, the how much issue, is one of the more interesting things for me, at least, with respect to sort of the Kokesh and Nalu case. Um, when, when you look at Kokesh, one thing clearly that the Supreme Court was concerned with and disturbed by was how the SEC historically had sought disgorgement of monies that sometimes the defendants either never received or kept. They, they cited in Kokesh um, a Second Circuit case called Contarinas, which was an insider trading case where an investment banker um, had tipped his fund that he co-managed. And in total between himself and the fund, they made about $7.2 million in insider trading profits. But the defendant, Contarinas, he only made he only made $400,000. But the SEC sought a disgorgement in district court saying that he had to disgorge not only the money that he profited on and made on his trades, but also the trades of his tippee, the fund. Um, so, And the Second Circuit agreed with that. And so that is forcing a defendant to pay not just money that he received in illegal profits, but money that someone else received. And Justice Chin in dissent sort of previewed what later happened at the Supreme Court a couple of years later with Kokesh, saying that that's not the normal disgorgement remedy. So you see cases at the SEC where that issue is confronted almost every day at the SEC dealing with how much disgorgement do we seek. Um, so in that case I just gave in Contarinas, that's an insider trader who's being forced to disgorge money he doesn't receive. But you also see issues where defendants sometimes receive money, but they don't keep the money. So you take an offering fraud, for example. Someone raises $20 million, and they say they're going to use it to build oil wells. And let's say they spend actually $10 million of it for the oil wells, but they all go dry and then things fall apart in the scheme. So they run away with the rest of the money. Traditionally, and the circuit courts have supported this, um, including the Ninth Circuit, the SEC would seek disgorgement of the full $20 million, all the money that was received in the offering, not just what was actually kept by the defendants. Because circuit courts viewed that as, well, all that money, the total amount, was obtained through fraud and therefore should be disgorged. And I think, you know, there are going to be arguments in front of the Supreme Court when this Lou case comes up that that's not right because that is not returning the defendant back to the status quo because now the defendant is owing more than the defendant he or she actually received. And that's sort of what's happening in the Liu case. If you look at the numbers in the Liu case, Charles Liu and Lisa Wang raised $27 million. Now they kept 8.2 of that for themselves. That went to their personal bank accounts. Another 3.8 of that million went to Lisa Wang's company, UDG, which helped solicit and find investors. That's about $12 million of the, the $27 million raised that actually went to the two individual defendants. But of the other $14 million, there's another big chunk, almost $9 million of that, went to two other boiler room operators overseas who found investors. So Charles Liu and Lisa Wang never saw that money. Um, it just went through their company and straight out to these overseas operators. So they will be arguing, and they, as Elaine pointed out in their petition, they argued it that, hey, it, it's wrong to make us pay more than we actually ended up having. This disgorging order will, will essentially make us owe more debts than we actually have. And I think the SEC will in turn argue, well, look, those payments to these overseas marketers were illegal in and of them themselves because in the marketing materials for the overall investment, you, Charles Liu and Lisa Wang, said you were, you were going to use all the money for the building the project in Southern California. You never mentioned anything about using money for the overseas marketers. In fact, the money used by Charles Liu and Lisa Wang for these overseas marketers were pretty high commissions. I mean, sometimes 
they were paying these overseas marketers more per investor than the investor was actually investing. And the other thing I think the SEC pointed out in its opposition to cert is that, which will make this appeal a little bit more difficult on this issue, that Charles Liu and Lisa Wang, they never presented any evidence of how they spent the money. So there is a burden of proof issue um, that could come up if the Supreme Court goes down this route. The SEC only has to come up with a reasonable approximation of the disgorgement, and it's up to the defendants to rebut that. So I think it'll be an interesting issue to see if the, if the Supreme Court goes down this route to see how they come out on, okay, if disgorgement is something that the SEC can seek, can they seek the whole amount, or do they have to just seek what was kept by a defendant? It seems pretty unlikely to me. I mean, I agree that the broad use of disgorgement that John was just describing by the SEC and the approval of that broad use of disgorgement by the courts has made the Supreme Court a little mad <laughs> that came through at the Kokesh argument, I think, um, and has been maybe the source of their desire to, to, to take this case and decide it. But it seems very unlikely to me that the court is going to itself whittle down disgorgement and say, this is acceptable disgorgement, but that's not acceptable disgorgement. I think what's much more likely is that the court is going to take as disgorgement what has been happening in the real world, what the SEC has been doing and what courts have been approving and decide whether that is something that counts as equitable relief or not. And that's the approach the court took in Kokesh. Of course, the government, and that was that was me, the government argued in Kokesh that you shouldn't look at the outer bounds of disgorgement when you're deciding whether disgorgement is a penalty. You shouldn't look at cases like Contarinas that John was describing. You should look at the core of what we're sure is disgorgement, which really is just putting the world back the way it should have been if the wrongdoing had never occurred. And the court did not accept that argument in Kokesh. It relied in its decision on Contarinas, on other ways in which disgorgement had been used beyond that absolute core. And I would very much suspect that the same thing is going to happen in this case. Um, given the way that the court has sort of, in my view, kind of reached out to take this case in the absence of a circuit split. That's one interesting point. In hearing about the cert grant, I mean, I certainly don't follow securities laws cases as, as nearly as the two of you, but I hadn't, I do follow the Ninth Circuit pretty closely and hadn't really heard a whole lot about the case. I noticed there weren't any supporting amicus sort of backing the petition for cert. So it does seem like the court going a bit out of its way to to hear this question. I think that's right. And the court signaled in Kokesh, as I say, in that footnote and some of its questions and argument that it was interested in the question. And then as the cert petition points out, what's happened subsequently is that people have been making this argument that the SEC isn't entitled to disgorgement at all because it's a penalty and that's not provided for in the statutory authority. But courts of appeals have been saying, well, gosh, we're kind of bound by our circuit precedent saying that the SEC can do this from before Kokesh, and Kokesh didn't squarely resolve this specific statutory issue. It was a statute of limitations case, so our hands are tied. And in that circumstance, I think petitioners made a pretty good case that the Supreme Court needs to step in and clear this up because courts of appeals have been sort of feeling like their hands are tied. The other thing that's been happening that I think may have played into the court granting this case is that in the FTC context, where the FTC also uses disgorgement and also has a statute that allows it to get injunctive relief, uh, which is a form of equitable relief, courts have been, or at least the Seventh Circuit recently and some other judges on other courts have signaled that they agree, have said that the FTC does not have the power to get disgorgement. And so that's swirling around in the background as well. And all of those factors, I think, kind of came together here to make it a case that was very interesting to the court, despite, as you say, the absence of amicus briefs and also the absence of a what you consider a true circuit split. One point on sort of the um, connection or the, the relation between talking about injunction, injunctive relief and disgorgement that is swirling around in, in the government's papers here. There's a suggestion that the, the power to grant an injunction to stop the fraudulent type behavior from, from going on kind of entails the, also the power to pry back ill-gotten gains from the fraud. And so you know, it, clearly in the statute, injunctive relief is, is allowed for. John, did you notice that argument and do you have any thoughts on its uh, merit? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the, the obvious argument for the SEC to make. They, they point out that uh, the various statutes that refer to injunct the power to seek injunctions, courts have inherent equitable powers to issue all sorts of equitable remedies. And that's all that the SEC is doing in these cases, the SEC, I'm sure, is going to be arguing. And the SEC points out, I think, and this is somewhat powerful, that there are various provisions and statutes that Congress have passed that have referred to disgorgement. So 
so their argument is that Congress clearly thought that the SEC had the power. That SEC had the power to seek disgorgement. But as, as Elaine points out, I mean, it was a pretty hot bench on the idea of whether or not the SEC actually has this authority. And as both of you just discussed, it, it, this has been, you know, teed up for the Supreme Court, which without circuit split, without anybody else weighing in on it. So it's clearly an issue that they are interested in about whether or not the SEC has the power to seek disgorgement. So it's it's unclear to me who's going to prevail on this. Um, those arguments made by the SEC that talking about Congress's intent and the various statutes and the inherent equitable powers of courts or just this hot bench of uh, Supreme Court justices who seem to be leaning um, possibly against the idea of the SEC and other federal agencies of having the power to seek this remedy. I have a pretty strong view on who's likely to prevail. Is that the petitioner is likely to prevail, I think, in this case? It's, it seems fairly clear to me. I mean, obviously, we have to see how the arguments play out in the briefs and then at oral argument. But I think, again, I think the court has long been interested in this issue, has in some ways reached out to take this case. I think this case is part of a bigger moment that's happening at the Supreme Court on the question of the power of what I'll call the administrative state, whether administrative agencies have arrogated too much power to themselves and need to have that power cut back, and whether they're acting effectively legislatively in some cases rather than simply executing the laws that Congress has put into effect. And I think this case very much feeds into that narrative. And one of the points that I think petitioners make effectively is, look, precisely because the statute doesn't provide for disgorgement, it's this very fuzzy, unlimited thing, and it's open to abuse. And there are all these uh, cases, some of them we were describing before, in which courts have awarded something calling it disgorgement that really puts the wrongdoer in a much worse position than they would have been in if they had never engaged in the wrongdoing. I'd be surprised if there isn't a majority on the court to say, look, we are reading the language of these statutes. It doesn't say anything about disgorgement. We know Congress knows how to authorize disgorgement because it did so for SEC administrative proceedings, but it didn't do so here. And yes, there are old cases from the mid-20th century that talk in broad general terms about the historic powers of equity, but that's not the mode of statutory interpretation that the Supreme Court engages in anymore. And so that's really uh, statutory interpretation from another era that's not consistent with the way that the court tends to approach that kind of analysis in this uh, in this day and age. So I have a, a strong view, as I say, that I think it's very likely that the petitioner will prevail here. And if that happens, then the SEC will have to consider its options. One of them, presumably, is to try to get a legislative fix. And I think some legislation has already been floating around out there that would be a legislative fix for the problem that would specifically authorize disgorgement in SEC actions in federal court. Um, there may be other avenues the SEC could pursue as well, including using its own administrative proceedings more heavily. Jen, I would just ask you as well if you sort of see the, the court potentially inclining the same way and, and what the impact would be on SEC enforcement measures, the, the response from uh, the agency, the, the potential for uh, a congressional fix. Yeah, I'm not sure. And Helena and I were talking about it earlier before this, but I'm not sure I, I, uh, I see it as that clear cut. Because there, there are implications beyond government agencies if a court says that the SEC doesn't have the power to go seek this equitable remedy. Then I wonder how courts and private parties will be arguing the issue of whether or not courts actually have the equitable power to issue disgorgement if there's got to be a statute somewhere that says says it. But that being said, I mean, it, as I pointed out, and as Elaine's pointed out, that it, it's there's a lot going on that seems to be that outside the context of the specific legal issue that seems to be having a trajectory of having court rule against this. But I'm not. I think it's gonna be hard to predict. I think it would be very interesting if they rule yes. Okay, courts do have that broad equitable powers, and disgorgement's one of them. So the SEC, as a federal agency, can go seek it despite what the lack of uh, express authority in some of these statutes. But SEC, disgorgement does not mean money not received or kept by a defendant. That's one possible outcome that could could happen here. And I do think regardless of what happens, the SEC, I'm sure, and they're doing it now, is going to be, are going to be making powerful pitches to uh, senators and congressmen trying to get a legislative fix for this. I mean, there's a, a a couple of bills already floating around with that because and their pitch is going to be fairly powerful. You take away disgorgement, that's less money for us to return to investors. So if the Supreme Court does rule the way that Elaine says, 
I wouldn't be surprised if, despite how slow acting and, and Congress is now, that they they do work to fix that issue. Because um, I don't think Congress, I mean, both Republicans and Democrats seem to be supporting the idea that the SEC needs to be able to have the power to go in and, and take back the ill-gotten gains of fraudsters. So long-term, I'm not sure it's going to have a huge impact, but short-term, it will, because if the only forum where the SEC has expressed statutory power, power and authority to seek disgorgement is in an AP, and the Supreme Court has already questioned the SEC's ability to do that, then the SEC's hands are going to be somewhat tied because and they can't seek disgorgement in district court and they have trouble going and filing anything in an administrative forum to, to seek disgorgement, then disgorgement is going to be taken out of, of one of their uh, tools for and remedies. Um, and they'll be left to just seeking penalties. And But as I said, there's still quite a bit of room for penalties to go up in district court cases. And so that's probably where they're going to go if it goes the way that Elaine is predicting. That all makes sense to me. But, I, you know, I would just say that not only in the Lou case itself, but in other pending cases in which the court has already ordered relief and perhaps has ordered small penalties and a large disgorgement amount, the case could really reverberate because that disgorgement amount wouldn't have been authorized by statute at the time that it was ordered. And so I think for whatever cases are pending out there, not only in the SEC context, but as I said, in the FTC context, in other agency contexts where the court's ruling in the Lou case might carry over because the disgorgement that's kind of disgorgement that's sought is very similar and the statutory scheme is also very similar. There'll be real effects in cases that are pending now, even if ultimately Congress passes statutes that fix it with respect to all the various agencies. And going forward, those agencies don't have any difficulty seeking disgorgement once that statute's been enacted. John, you referenced some cases earlier on where, you know, the defendants seemed maybe a bit more sympathetic when it came to the remedy of disgorgement that was was ordered, you know, maybe requiring them to pay back a bunch more money than they had ever really had their hands on in in the first place. It, It strikes me as a bit interesting and perhaps lends itself to the argument, both sort of suggesting that there might be a legislative fix around the corner if the Supreme Court sides for these defendants is they don't seem particularly sympathetic. I mean, none of the money, it sounds like, went to any salutary purpose and was all fraudulently gained. So it, it would seem to us a bit odd for the Supreme Court to feel sympathetic and, and side with them, but maybe also gives motivation for some sort of form of congressional relief to, to fix the situation so that they can be you know deprived and have, have their fraudulently earned, gotten money back to back to investors. I guess. I mean, but I, even if you look at the facts in Kokesh, and Elaine can probably refresh me the exact numbers, but there's quite a bit. The defendant in Kokesh wasn't that sympathetic either in terms of how much money he had looted from investors. And the Supreme Court was fully aware of that and knew that if they ruled that the statute of limitations applied to it, there'd be a substantial chunk of money left on the table that investors would never see. Yet the Supreme Court went ahead and ruled that statute of limitations, five-year statute of limitations does govern, govern the remedy of disgorgement and, and really uh, reduced the remedy that was available for the SEC in that Kokesh case. And therefore, the amount of money that the SEC could return to investors. So yeah, I agree that the defendants here in the Lou case aren't that sympathetic given how they looted the investor money and how none of it really was spent on the project they promised. But I'm not sure those sympathies are going to have that much of a factor in this before the Supreme Court. I think well, that's exactly right. Well, that sounds good. We can go ahead and leave it there for now and stay tuned for uh, this case in, in the upcoming term, Lou versus SEC. Um, Elaine Goldenberg uh, from Munger Tolls in DC. Thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And John Barry from out here in the LA office. Thank you as well for joining the show. Thank you, Brian. And that's a wrap for our program for November 22nd, 2019. When I make guests one more time, Tom Hiltak, John Barry, and Elaine Goldenberg. I should also thank my production staff here, principally Heinrich Nielsen, I want to thank you also for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget that one hour of participatory California CLE credit can be had for your having listened to this program. Just find it at www.dailyjournal.com. I'm Brian Cardell. Before speaking to you next Friday, have a great week. <laughs>